Welcome to Once Upon a Disney, an analytical yet fun-loving look at Disney narrative filmography from the 20th century. I'm Andy Redwine, and with me, as always, is my co-host and long-lost twin, Larry Brenner. How are you, Larry? I'm doing great. How are you doing, Andy? Hey, I'm swell. We've got a guest star. We've got a great guest star. Our guest star today is Cassie Brower. Cassie Brower is a bookworm and indie film lover from Colorado. She's a former Disney executive who helped develop and oversaw the production of several hit kids animated series, including the award-winning Sophia the First and the reboot of The Muppet Babies. She currently writes dialogue for the world's most fashionable and sweetest celeb, Miss Minnie Mouse. She says hi, by the way, Larry. She adores the podcast, you two. Oh, that is now canon, everyone. That is that is established. If Cassie says it, it's true. I uh, love Cassie, it. Cassie, we're so glad to have you today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. We let our guests pick our movies. I'm curious why you selected the 1961 version of The Parent Trap. Well, it's the one I grew up with. I'm not quite a millennial. And... For me, when I think about girl protagonists that get a little bit naughty, this is the iconic one for kids. You're on their side when they're doing all these naughty things. And I think as a kid who was a little bit naughty myself and finding those movies that spoke to me, this was one of them. I also love all the characters in this movie. They're all so well-defined. They all have their comedic moments from grandpas and grandmas and the parental love is just kind of really hot and sexy. Even when I was six, I'm like, wow. (laughs) I mean, Marina, you know, I was like, whoo, she's a beautiful woman. I want her to be my mom. So as a girl who always kind of had a little romantic side to me, even as a little kid, this movie just checked all the boxes for me on all the things I love, like female protagonists, Really well-written dialogue, great character development for everybody in the movie. There's not one that's kind of thrown away. So that's why I chose it. And it's aged really well. Sometimes we look back at these classic movies and we're cringing a lot because that was how (laughs) storytelling was then. I watched this with my youngest son and he loved it. It didn't feel like an old movie to him at all, really. Right, right, right. I mean, my daughters liked it too and they were were more familiar with is it Lindsay Lohan's in that Lindsay movie? Lindsay Lohan, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they're more familiar with that, but they actually preferred this version. So I thought that was pretty cool. The other one I think is, n- no offense to that one and all the girls that grew up with it, but I, w- I would tell your audience, give this one a chance because that one just is a little watered down from where this one is. I think it was the time it was made and the director and writer who wrote it and things like that. But, you know, this one's naughty. Like, it's fun. A little bit naughty. Not on Disney naughty. <laughs> so some key facts. Haley Mills was just coming off of the incredible success of 1960s Pollyanna. So what could be better than two Haley Mills for this follow-up smash? This movie, The Parent Trap, showcases Disney movie magic at what I think is its best. There are several techniques that are utilized, including English process and some blue backing, split screens, double exposure with the backgrounds. There's a body double for Haley. There's lots of trick shots because, as cinematographer Lucien Ballard stated in an interview, Walt liked technical things. So Walt Disney used an entire hour of his weekly television program to demonstrate these techniques for viewers who are wowed by the experience. Now, in this viewing, 
I noticed one shot where the girls are side by side with cake on their face. And so the double actually gets her screen moment in there because if you look very carefully, their eye color is just not quite the same. There's a couple. Yeah. (laughs) When I told my youngest that it was not two actresses, that it was one actress, his eyes went wide and he gasped. They pull it off incredibly well. Yes, they do. I find myself forgetting it's not the same actress. And I'm, I'm old enough to know better. Oh, no kidding. And my daughter last night was like, wait, they aren't really twins? And I'm like, no, they're not really twins. She goes, oh, that makes us even better. And there's no CGI. And she's like, well, how did they cut a film? And so she's Googling, how did they do this? So of the movies that Haley Mills made for Disney, The Parent Trap was one of her favorites because of the way it normalized conversations about divorce. So a girl in Haley's boarding school had divorced parents and had this great deal of shame about it. And so in this way, she felt that she made a difference in helping create less of a stigma about divorce for children. Great. So let's get into it. Let's start the analysis. For our listeners at home, this is the part where I talk about the Manish Tana. The Manish Tana is the opening prayer of Passover. It's where we ask, why is this night different from all other nights? But when we talk about the Manish Tana in a movie, what we're really talking about is the point of attack. Why does the movie open where it opens? Sometimes we find that this is related to the inciting incident, but other times it isn't. We're really talking about what the decision-making was. Why did we choose to open here? Why does the story need to open here? And I'll throw out to you guys, why does this movie open where it opens? It opens on Sharon coming to camp and establishes her character really well. She's an upper class Bostonian child who's been kind of very protected in her life. And it's her first time at a sleepaway summer camp, which is very clearly established in some really short, easy ways to do it. I think it's just easing you into it. You're like, oh, it's a girl going to camp. And then her world's about ready to be rocked, which we don't know yet. And it happens within like the first five minutes. I think she meets the girl that looks exactly like her. And I think we all can kind of when that happens, for me, I'm always like, what would I do or what would I think if I ever ran into a person that looked exactly like me? You know what I mean? I don't know how you guys felt about that. There's also a short before this movie as the credits roll. And so that's, oh, I think, interesting, too. I think that I whole... No, no, it's totally fine. You don't have to watch it to get the point. But I think it's interesting because it just kind of outlines the entire plot. And I'm not sure. It's, I don't think we would ever do that now. But I wonder if there was some level of controversy around this film about divorce or about people getting back together and breaking up and coming back together that they were like, oh, we need to soften this with a song and a short. I bet you're right. We have to let them know the divorced couple that we see in this movie is not going to be divorced forever. So you're right. I think it's sidestepping the controversy. The other thing that I think is interesting about where we start in this movie is we don't start with the parents at all. We don't meet them until much later in the movie. When the kids are going to talk about their parents later, we, the audience, have no idea who they are or what they're like. I don't know if this was an intentional decision or not, but for me, when the twins are talking about, I never met my mother, I don't know her, I can feel it more because I don't know her mother either. Right. Yes. I feel the absence from their lives that each of them has because 
because what is it like to have this complete blank of who your mom and dad are going to be? If that's intentional, I think it's really smart. I agree. Because otherwise, we have more information than our protagonists have. Yes. And I think that's really smart that we're going along the journey with them and we get to know them and they're real kids in the first part of the movie before we get into what this movie is about, the parent trap to bring our parents back together. At the same time, the girls are very different people. And I think that's interesting. They have to meet. It has to be a weird meeting. I mean, they meet in the chow line, right? Yeah. And they're staring at each other in the face. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, gosh, but they're clearly very different people. And I think that's, it's like, well, she can't be my sister. She's so different. We can't be related. And it never dawns on them that they could be related, even though it's kind of apparent to everybody else that eh, this is like pretty uncanny. If it wasn't for the song, we discover that they're twins, the exact same scene where they discover that they're twins, right? The song gives it away for us. So we're a little ahead of them. And obviously we do know what the name of the movie is that we went to see, (laughs) but still. It's really smart, really well done. I like it a lot. So let's go into the plot. We've got the exposition, and I'm also linking onto this, the inciting incident. Exposition is all of the information that we get about these characters, and the inciting incident is the moment where our movie really launches. Our characters really appear for the first time. Not that they appear for the first time, but conflict happens for the first time that's going to change their lives forever. And there's a couple of different places where we might call the inciting incident here, including really early. I'm wondering what you guys think is exposition and where you think the inciting incident is. I think the inciting incident, really, I think it's at the chow line. I think it's that moment where they see each other face to face and it's like, well, what is this? Because we've kind of been going along with Sharon and things seem to be okay. What's interesting about the exposition to me in this is that everyone is the specificity of it. Sharon, we know things like she gets allergy pills, insect repellent, and a poetry book. Those three items, we know everything we need to know sort of about her. And very quickly... And with those, again, that specificity is just so ridiculously important. On the other hand, well, not really the other hand, with Susie, she likes Ricky Nelson, right? Yes. And she's putting these pictures on her wall. And Sharon can't really figure out why she's putting the pictures on the wall. And she's like, oh, it's like a fan thing. Well, who are these people? Well, I don't know. I mean, all of these little, or taking the scissors and cutting someone's dress up. (laughs) All of the things that happen are just very specific and things we haven't seen in a movie before, right? No. Which I think is really kind of fun and keeps us interested and keeps things going without saying, Sharon is a stick in the mud. Sharon is doesn't understand how... Li- Sharon lives under a rock. Susie is this person. So instead of that or a character telling them that, we get to experience that specificity along with them. And I think that's a strong strength of this exposition. I don't think there's a moment that's actually thrown away, even if the dialogue... I mean, the dialogue's either really fun, and, but everyone builds character. I want to bring it up because this girl only has three scenes. The little blonde girl with the skunk. When I saw her carrying that skunk as a little kid, I'm like, I want a skunk. How did she get a skunk? (laughs) And she has three scenes and each one she like stands out in every scene. So there's just for me not a moment of 
throwaway, like, did you really need to see that girl with a skunk? But it establishes a world of a girl, right? That's not traditional. So that's what I just really think is really great about this movie. That doesn't seem to be a lot of talking without it being really direct and needed to do something, you know, establish character or establish plot or move the things forward. Yes. But I'm going to throw out, if we're going to point to the moment that is the inciting incident for all of us, there's a few places I always talk about what I would grade my students correct on. If one of my students said to me, the girls go to camp and that's not their normal life, so that's the inciting incident, I would give them full credit for that. If they said to me, the girls meet each other, I would give them full credit for that too. But I think for me, the best answer is the decision to switch each other's lives, to go back to the other parent and get to know Susie's going to get to know mom and Sharon's going to get to know dad. For me, that's what propels the rest of the movie and is probably our biggest inciting incident, even though we might point to each of those as little bumps that feel like inciting incidents too. Yes, that for me is the real inciting incident. If you go with the parent trap theme for the whole movie, the real inciting incident is we're sisters, our parents are still in love, we think, or we want to be together, we need to bring our parents together. Yes, it's interesting how without ever having seen their parents together, they decide their parents deserve to be together, even though each of them only knows one of the parents at that particular point. What well, kind of makes you wonder if their old self, a child has memories, even when a child, if they were a year old, and granted, kids have amnesia about that. But what if they look at a picture and they're like, wait a minute, I know this person. And it's just part of, they're like, oh, we need to redo this. I need to be with her. She needs to be you. We all need to be back together. Yeah, agree. Well, I think there's also a longing in kids, especially, I mean, I come from divorced parents, not as young as these, obviously. And I have been around people that haven't had any parents or a mother or father, and you do long. You see that with like, oh, I don't have a good dad or I don't have a dad at all in my life, but you have a wonderful dad and I really, really want that. And I feel like I'm missing something because of that. We uh, go the rising action, the climax. And the rising action is everything that happens along the way of the journey up until we get to the climax. And the climax is the place where stakes are at their highest. I often say the forces of good contend with the forces of evil. I think you'll agree with me. Rising action includes the early parts where Susie is with her mom and Sharon is with her dad. Sharon has conflict with Vicky. Susie chafes a little bit under the watch of her grandmother, bonds with her grandfather, all building up to still rising action when mom and dad are reunited in California and they both realize that the twin girls know each other, where would you say this movie reaches its climax where things are at their most tense, where the possibility exists that this movie might not have a happy ending? This is one of those movies where I think every answer you give me is going to be correct. There's more than one right answer here. So I was wondering what you guys look to as the climax. I would say the dinner when everything goes wrong. Their dad's getting married, what, two days later, three days later to a new woman. And they just like, oh, this is going to solve it. But their parents just keep fighting. <laughs> and their parents are literally at that moment say, we can't be together. We just do not get along and we can't make this work. I don't know if that's fully it, because, but for me, that's like, 
what do we do now? This movie is really great about putting obstacles in front of what the twins want. So that's one of many. But I feel emotionally that was the one that struck me the most. Because once we go off on the camping, it's just more fun and games. And you don't see the mom. The big thing, though, that camping trip's their last ditch effort. They've said, we're not going to tell you who we are unless you all figured this out. So there's some foiling that happens. But then Vicky leaves in a huff after kind of being submarined during this camping trip. And so that for me, it's like if this camping trip goes well and Vicky and Mitch get it together, then Mitch and Susan aren't going to be able to fall in love again at all. So it's either going to make or break this relationship. So that's my thinking. I'm going to agree with both of you. Timing-wise, I think Andy's climax is more accurate to where the climax needs to be. Cassie's is a little earlier in the movie. But I think Cassie is also right in that the real conflict of this movie is between mom and dad. And the scene where they clear the air happens at that point. When dad comes back from the disastrous camping trip with Vicky, it feels like there should be a scene where... Maybe it's not all subtext between the two of them where some things really come out between them and it doesn't really materialize in that moment. Dad has realized Vicky is wrong for him and that Maggie is right for him and that's just the way that it's going to be. So it feels like the perfect place for the climax would be there, but it's not there. And you have to really combine the two things that you said as an extended climax in order to get the satisfactory climax. I'm not saying it doesn't work for this movie. I'm just saying identifying the climax isn't neat and simple the way it sometimes is in other movies. That that may not be a bug, that may be a feature, but it is worth exploring and unpacking. Yeah, I agree. Everything from that point on, which is basically like five more minutes of the movie, if that, is the falling action. Sharon has her premonition because she's a little bit psychic of being at the wedding. And we know that what she's seeing actually is what's going to happen. If it is Sharon who thinks it, I know Sharon set up that she's psychic, but could this be Susie's first psychic moment? I think it was Susie. I think it was Susie because she was in the more boy pajamas and Sharon was in the girly ones. I mean, at that point, you can't blame you can't me for tell. not knowing. <laughs> no, they are the same girl. Tell. They are the same girl towards the after at the camping spot until the end. They are kind of the same person. It's hard to tell them apart. For sure. Well, I wanted to switch gears here for just a minute and talk about dramatic irony. This is a technique as old as Greek tragedy, where the audience knows what's happening in the situation while the other characters have no idea. It's a technique that screenwriters can use to just build layers into their stories. And I certainly try to use it. I'm just curious, how do we think this script best uses this kind of technique? They use it really well for their comedy. My favorite scene is when we know mom is in town and dad doesn't yet. Like that whole scene until he discovers them and they have their confrontation is just for me really funny. I laugh every time and I know it's going to happen. I've seen this movie a million times, but <laughs> they use it really well for comedy. 
Mom is more in on the joke, and the joke is more at dad's expense. Mom is manipulating circumstances. She gets Vicky to go on the camping trip, even though we didn't think that was what scene we were leading towards. There's a lot of manipulation of events to be in the right place at the right time, a lot of setup and payoff and what have you. I think it works really well. And I think, honestly, as fun as the opening scenes in the camp are, that part of the movie is where the comedy is really funny. Almost feels to me that this movie gets structured. Comedy, serious bit in the middle where the twins are separate and it's heartfelt and they're getting to know their parent. And then we go back to the full-on comedy when the twins are reunited. That sounds right. I know when the twins go to their separate homes, we all know that it's Sharon as Susie and Susie as Sharon, but the rest of the characters are in the dark. Or sort of in the dark. Maybe Verbena's not in the dark. The dog's definitely not in the dark. (laughs) And Grandfather has his suspicions, right? But everybody else is kind of like, oh, yeah, this is just how it is. And they don't really anticipate anything. You know what it is about that middle section for me, though? I'm going to point it out. I forgive the movie this because without this, there is no movie. But in the middle part of that movie where each is at their parents' house, the entire time I'm thinking, Maggie and Mitch are monsters for separating their children in this way. Selfish, irresponsible, cruel. What judge did this King Solomon thing and said, you get one kid, you get the other kid, keep them apart. Or maybe the judge did that in the hopes that they would realize these kids need to be together at all times. But when I think about grandma and grandpa having never gotten to know Susie, When I think about Sharon never getting to know her dad or the one moment where I wanted to stand up and cheer, and honestly, if it had lasted 20 minutes, I was there for it, was when Susie says, in a fit of anger to Maggie, says, this is absolutely wrong what you've done to us. And we don't live in that moment long because, again, this is a comedy and we don't want to live in that moment wrong. But Susie, I am right there with you. Your parents are monsters. Maybe you both would be better off without either of them. Would serve them right. Things like divorce, adoption. These were all very quiet things that people just kind of kept quiet and didn't really allow children to really know what their identity was. Prevailing wisdom was if you feed them and clothe them and do good things for them, then they turn out okay, right? There's no need for all of this children to be involved with all of this darkness or whatever. So yeah, I mean, I think it's neat that things have changed, but I'm with you, Larry. Monsters. (laughs) It is the one thing, and a lot of movies have this, this one big flaw, how do you get past it? And it is, especially because they're twins. It seems to be even worse because they're twins in some way, because when you think about twins or what we know of them, I'm not a twin, but I know some, they're really close. They have a different bond than maybe regular siblings. It's hard. Yeah, you know, if it was an older sibling and a younger sibling, would this idea of let's split up the kids have flown with them? It's it's if this idea that, well, because they look exactly alike and they're twins, it's okay to separate them. And we know Sharon and Susie are very different kids. They just look alike. And obviously, if we don't have this flaw, we don't have this movie. We don't have the movie. Yeah. The so it's, we have to forgive it. But I'm glad that Susie calls it out in that moment. Yes. Because I'm mad. I'm still mad about it. And Larry, you've talked about how every movie has a big lie. You're allowed one big lie. And I think this is the lie that it's allowed. But I think if they'd added any more, we would not be okay with it. 
That's exactly right. This is the lie we have to buy. If we walk away from this movie and we say, you know what I didn't like about it? I didn't like that the kids grew up without each other. Right. And you didn't like the movie. I mean, that's what you came to see. Well, the other bit of dramatic irony that I've noticed is that Vicky is a gold digger, and we know that. But And her mother's involved in this plot to get Mitch to marry her and then take half. But Mitch doesn't know that, and really the girls don't know it, know it. Sharon knows it immediately. Yeah, yeah Sharon's on board, but Mitch doesn't know. And so a lot of the dramatic irony, I think, happens really with Mitch. He really is in the dark with a lot. I kind of love that about him. He, for me, it's really funny because it does play into that oblivious man kind of stereotype. But because um, even, when, you know, that shot when he's on his truck and he's like, I think something weird's in the air. <laughs> you know, it's like, yes, there is. There's something fun. Your, your life's going to be turned upside down. I love that it's kind of established that Vicky has learned this from her mom. There's like a throwaway line that her mom's been married four times. And you're like, oh, it's the family business. She's just went into the family business of marrying rich men. So, I mean, it's just really great, that line. <laughs> One of my favorite lines of the movie is when Mitch says, how do you feel about Vicky joining our family? And Sharon, as Susie says, I think that's great. I've always wanted a sister. I'm sister. so glad you're adopting her. It's a perfect movie moment. Let's launch into some of the characters. Let's start with Sharon. Again, we talked a little bit about that specificity revealing character. But what do we know about Sharon? And what kind of a ride does she go on in this movie? Well, I mean, for me, I mean, I guess there is no getting away from the nature versus nurture bit of this. We have to talk about it a little bit. But it's very clear to me that Sharon comes from a very structured household. And she's going into an environment at the camp, which in theory is going to have structure, but also balance that structure with a certain amount of freedom. I mean, I have to say, she strikes me as very different from Susie. The performance that Haley Mills and Haley Mills give are really great throughout. But I always gravitate towards the Sharons over the Susies, the goody two-shoes, the rule followers, I'm more of a Sharon than I'm a Susie. And I do feel like the conflict between the two of them doesn't come from Sharon. Susie initiates it. Susie is the one who gets aggressive about it. And that maybe Sharon would have been willing to be friends with this girl who looks just like her. She's willing to have a conversation about it until Susie starts going, why do you have my face, huh? Yeah, for sure. As if Sharon had done something. Sharon of the two of them is the more emotionally mature, mature, but she is the one who is less worldly or less street smart. Street smart. She doesn't have a lot of street smarts. Book smarts, but not street smarts. Yeah, there it is. She's been fenced in all her life, whereas Susie has been able to play rough, go out, meet boys, have a more normal childhood than Sharon probably has with piano concerts and all those kind of things that her grandma has made her be. So she's more adult. But Susie's a little bit more fun and rock and roll. There's one little bit of business. I don't think that Sharon knows how to be with boys. The movie doesn't make a big deal about this, but Susie does. I think the movie could have been about that. I'm glad it's not because not every. <laughs> but it feels like something I know about Sharon, even if it's not canon. But Susie, um, Andy, you're a Susie. Is that what I'm? Is that what I'm? Well, saying? Susie's more comfortable with men, I think, because she's her dad's girl. I mean, she she's, she's not afraid. She's yeah, she's not afraid of boys, and she's certainly not afraid to 
engage them or whatever and be like, oh, this is how your button gets pushed. I know how to do that. Talk about how great you are. And then all of a sudden, oh, that's so smart. And it's because of the absence in their lives. Sharon doesn't know how to relate to boys because she doesn't have a dad. Susie has trouble making friends with Sharon because she doesn't have a mom or is threatened by Sharon. And while Sharon has grandfather, grandfather's... That's the only male in her life. Yeah, and he's a little henpecked. A little. <laughs> it's I like love it. him so much. He I do, too. I think he's fantastic, and I'm so glad he gets his moment, you know? Yes. He gets yes. to come out from under the thumb. It's so great. I spend the first 15 minutes of this movie hating Susie for the injustices she's perpetrating on Sharon. She is the antagonist of those first yes. 15 minutes. I'm yes, not is. on oh, her side. Sure. But once the two girls are in the cabin together, Susie wins me over by talking about seeing the picture of her mother and thinking it was the most beautiful woman in the world. And it's when she wins Sharon over. Both audience and my character surrogate are won over in the exact same moment, I think. A lot happens in that isolation cabin, that's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) And it's smart. It's such a smart way. I even believe that the camp counselor is smart for making this the punishment that serves the crime when she says, you'll either torture each other or you'll make the best of it. Either way, I win. And I'm like, (laughs) you should have been the judge in the divorce proceedings because you would have set this family straight. Let's talk about the most beautiful woman in the world, Maureen O'Hara, as uh, Maggie McKendrick. I mean... Full disclosure, I will watch a Maureen O'Hara movie, even if it's not one of her best. She is fantastic in everything she does. And she is the most beautiful woman in the world in this movie. Camera loves her. Oh, yeah. She's a stunner. In this film, she's under her mother's thumb. She even dresses like her. (laughs) She has her mother's hairstyles. And her dad is like, hey, I guess all the women are wearing this. Maybe you ought to cut your hair. Maybe you ought to be yourself. Susie and Sharon get their mischievousness from her. Oh, absolutely. 100%. Yes. Yes. In fact, Susie may be more like Maggie than Sharon is like Maggie. Mm -hmm. Well, I don't know. Sharon has some really good scenes with Vicky where you see the Maggie. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's true. Yeah. I'm like, wow, I could never talk to someone like that when I was 13 years old. Sharon's the one who takes the scissors to that dress. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's true. So. <laughs> Sharon does give as good as she gets. I, she I, I have to give her credit for that. I think even more than Susie after that opening, you know, after that, it's like Sharon is one tough cookie. I'm like, wow. <laughs> Do you both get the sense that after Mitch, while Mitch may have dated, and we know he's dated since, you get the sense that Maggie never did again? Yes. That she has been without a relationship ever since. Yeah, because she even says it's been a long time. Oh, I read subtext into that too, Andy. But I also wonder if a big part of Maggie's problem is her mother. If her mother may have in some way sabotaged her relationship with Mitch. I mean, I don't know. We never really find out what was the final straw that led them to divorce. But I blame grandma. I mean, too. (laughs) Well, you see it. You see it, Larry. Like when she's in her home that she grew up with, she's very buttoned up. And then when she goes to California, you suddenly see the fun Maggie. So I think that's where it comes from. You see who she was or who Mitch brought out in her. She could fully be herself for the first time. Having a grandma who is a little 
binding towards myself. I can totally relate to that. She's always telling me like, be a, a little lady and stuff. I'm like, I don't want to be a lady. I want to splay my legs out and not wear dresses. You can see that that Mitch made her feel comfortable. And for the first time she could let her freak flag fly. So you clearly see like Boston, she has to be buttoned up. But when she goes to California, she can be her true self. If the movie had space for it, I wish the movie had Maggie standing up to her mother. I don't know where that would be Mm. in this movie. And it takes away from the girls standing up to their parents. The movie is ultimately not about that. Grandpa gets that moment, standing up to grandma a little bit. But I would like some recognition that Maggie suffers under her mother's constant control. No question. And of course, sparks really fly with Mitch when she socks him. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's this, I mean, it's like, wow, she really let him have it. And I think he's kind of turned on by it. Because at the end of the day, a strong woman who speaks her mind is the sexiest woman in the world. And if you don't like that, there's something wrong with you. If you like a Vicky who will tell you what you want to hear, but you don't want a voice that will challenge you, you're wrong. Hmm. Mitch Evers, let's talk about him. Brian Keith, who is great in this role, his aw shucks kind of, I mean, I really love watching performances and I think this is a really good one. Yes. I just love, you can tell he just does not know how to deal with a teenage daughter. Every scene he's <laughs> uncomfortable and he's like, oh, can I kiss you still? Like, what is this? And then their conversations, it's very clear. Like he's a very funny bumbler with women and you understand why he fell for Vicky and cannot see that she just wants him for his money because he's just oblivious to that layer. The absolute best scene with Mitch is where he is having a conversation (laughs) with Sharon as Susie about the birds and the bees and he thinks he's going to have to get into it and he doesn't know how to get into it and then he realizes he's opened a can that he didn't even need to open. It's so great. It's so, so delicious. Although that scene does make me wonder, Sharon's had that conversation, but Sharon was raised by Maggie. Has Susie gotten to have that conversation? And if so, with who? I mean, probably Verbena, right? Verbena. Verbena's told her everything. She probably knows more than anybody in the world from Verbena. (laughs) Very possibly. I think Mitch is charming. The thing about him unfortunately for him, is we meet him and he's already been duped. I respect mom more than I respect dad because we see dad is getting fooled by Vicky right off the bat. But I love the way he talks to Sharon when he thinks Sharon is Susie. I love that they're pals and that they're buddies and that he's an active part of his little girl's life and that she really is his world. You can tell he wins me over because you can tell he adores adores her, and has legitimately Mm -hmm. missed her over the course of this. Oh, the great little interchange with him and Hecky when they talk about, didn't you get rid of her? Ah, she's just hanging around the airport. (laughs) I thought I'd bring her home. It's so great. It's just, it's so, so lovely. Let's talk about Vicki Robinson. She's an antagonist on a mission. What do we think about Vicki? She does her job. She's a villain you love to hate. But she's a smart villain. What I like is she immediately recognizes who she believes to be Susie, as a threat. She tries to charm her. She tries to play those little tricks. She recognizes that the way in might be, well, you grew up without a mother, so maybe I'll offer you that. I'll dangle that in front of you a little bit. But she sees 
the woman in front of her. Whereas Mitch just sees the little girl. Little girl. Vicky right. recognizes, oh no, this girl isn't equal to me. I'm going to have to use every weapon in my disposal to win here. I don't like Vicky. I'm glad Mitch doesn't marry Vicky. He would be miserable. She's terrible. But I respect how much she's playing to win. Villains play to win. That's great writing. And Vicky does not give up easily. So we have Charles and Louise McKendrick. So I already mentioned Charles reminds me of my grandpa, who was a little bit henpecked, but the sweetest guy. He was my grandpa, the best man in my life. So I just always have a soft spot for him. I think Louise is a little, you get who she is, but you don't love her. Like Larry was saying, you're like, oh, poor Maggie's been under that woman's thumb forever. No wonder she is the way she is and is hiding in Boston instead of pursuing what she really wants. Every scene with them made me remember how much I love Gilmore Girls. That whole family, if you told me that Maggie and Sharon were going to run away to Stars Hollow, I'm there. (laughs) They do feel like fully realized people, even though we don't see them very much. You do get a sense of their history and their continued relationships. One moment that I thought was really smart in a movie like this, where we could see Grandma as one of the antagonists of this movie, she's a minor antagonist, if anything, is when... Sharon reveals herself to actually be Susie. It affects her emotionally, too. And Grandpa pulls her aside because it's not her moment to have. But it's all real there. Because grandparents being separated from their grandchildren, that's hard, too. Right? Yes. For sure. And they make a moment of it, to your point, Larry. They don't just rush into Sharon and Maggie. They make a moment for Grandma to have it, too, which is really wonderful. A lot of movies don't do that, you know? Once they have the big reveal, then it's all about the main core cast. Every character in this movie has a moment, you know? Mm -hmm. Even the side characters that are normally thrown away. It feels more real to me because of that. You wouldn't just suddenly cut to the close-up in a real-life situation like that of the two main people. You would have Grandma coming in and going, oh my god, I'm you and you would have grandpa and everybody you know right but that's one of the strengths of this script is rather than just focusing on the main characters the scenes really do seem to care what every character is feeling at that moment in that scene even if that character is not a major part even if you're just the priest who's come to officiate the screenwriting really feels like every character needs to be emotionally present in every scene and that's that's so great yes Because it's real life. You don't just sit there if you're a part of something going on and don't react. (laughs) You're a part of it. Absolutely. I think the sweetest moment with grandfather is when Susie holds on to him and smells. And she's like, I want to live in this moment. I want to remember this peppermint tobacco tobacco. smell. Yeah. Yeah. That's a sweet moment. Again, it's the specificity. I keep going back to the little moments of this movie and why I like them Even that line about, oh, I found her at the airport. It's this great texture. Character establishing, yeah. Speaking of some characters, let's talk about Verbena and Hecky. Let's talk about the folks that work at the ranch. What do we think about those two? I love them too. They're on screen very little and they they are very memorable. I mean, Verbena gets a little more screen time than Hecky does, I think. Verbena has kind of stepped up to be Susie's mom but she's not Susie's mom. I feel like she's come up with this strategy to parent without parenting by framing everything by saying, I don't say a word, 
And the subtext is, because I'm not your family and I'm not your guardian and I don't have the right to tell you anything, but then I still tell you because you need to know. It's an interesting strategy. I feel like she's more than just gossipy. I feel like she's just negotiated her way into the family in this way. I love that she constantly looks at Mitch and goes, you didn't know what a good thing you had when you had it. <laughs> yeah, I love yes. it. It's great. It's great. And they're in on the trap, right? They don't like yes. Vicky either. And so Hecky will wink at the girls at the camp and Verbena's like, I know what's going on here. And they all conspire with the girls to recreate this first date because the girls couldn't have done that by themselves. Hecky has a real Fred Mertz from I Love Lucy sort of energy to yeah, him. Yeah, he does. For you sure. drag him into the zany scheme and then it's beneath his dignity to be in it. And you get the humor of the fact that he's been forced kicking and screaming into wearing this costume and playing the violin. Let's talk for just a minute about one of the supporting characters, because I think it's important. The Reverend Dr. Mosby. Oh, my God. He's my favorite. (laughs) I mean, he's on screen for like 10 minutes and you like know everything about this man. (laughs) He's got a little bit of a drinking problem, but he loves love. (laughs) Right, right. I think it's interesting how everyone assumes he behaves himself and has these incredibly high standards for them. It, one of those hide the beer, the preachers here kind of thing. But he drinks a double bourbon, and that's a punchline. And he thinks this whole thing is pretty funny. And so he's kind of this observational character that doesn't really do much, but he kind of rubber stamps that, wow, there's this divorce going on. He's with her, she's with him. And I wonder if he exists to give an okay to divorce and remarriage, because it's this huge doctrinal issue in evangelical and even Catholic churches, but this is an evangelical pastor in 1961. It's almost like they have to like, oh, we've got to get a preacher in here (laughs) to make this okay. How do we do this? We've got to have this authority figure. What do we do? But also, he's sort of almost a Greek chorus in those scenes. Yes. Yes, he is. He's seeing the truth of what really exists, where the love really is, and where it's not. He is immediately charmed by Maggie. Immediately, to the point where they are linking arms, best buddy. And as he's leaving with Vicky and Vicky's mom, he's like, how did he ever let her get away from him? Of all the things to say. But he's seeing the truth in those scenes, right? He's seeing Mm -hmm. the truth in what's happening here. And he's fun. He's fun to have around. He doesn't get to do much, but he's fun to have. Absolutely. All right, protagonist problems. So do we have any protagonist problems in this movie, Larry? What do you think? Early on in the movie, the protagonist function, I think, is Sharon's. And I don't have a problem with that, and I don't have it being expanded to Sharon and Susie once we establish they're going to be going to different places. But once the girls come back to California, once mom is there also, it is kind of a free-for-all who the protagonist is. And at that point in the movie, I am constantly trying to figure out who is Sharon, who is Susie, because there are no clues. I could guess, and I think I would be right, but I couldn't say with 100% certainty which lines are Sharon's, which lines are Susie. It gets a little messy. And I think, honestly, Mitch becomes the protagonist for the second half. Yes, he is. He's the one that has to change. 
Right. And that's the thing we're talking about, right? The protagonist function is to change and grow, to start the movie as one person and end another place to have a great realization. Mom has a lesser one, but I think she comes to California fully prepared to enchant and reunite with Mitch. She buys her outfits. She gets her hair done. She's a little more in on the parent trap, I think, than Mitch is. But Mitch is the one who really needs to see, oh, what a fool I've been. This thing that I thought was an obstacle is, in fact, the thing that attracts me the most to her. But I will say the twins still drive the action. So if that is how you're doing your protagonist, then it is right, because they're still driving the action and they are the ones hitting the obstacles. It's not Mitch necessarily, but Mitch does have the change. So I agree with you. It's it's a strange thing. It works in this movie, I think, obviously, but I'm also partial to it. So <laughs> I think this movie works. It almost has to happen that way, because if you're trying to get them back together... It can't be these girls pushing this guy into this relationship. It's got to be him deciding that, yes, this is what he really wants. Because if he's just getting shoved into it, we're all going to go, well, that was that was kind of annoying. That's not going to work out at the end. We talked a couple of weeks ago about DuckTales. And I only bring this up because we talked about how Huey, Dewey, and Louie are three identical triplets, but we can't tell the personalities apart. And I do think this movie in the second half suffers from this a little bit. It is only when Sharon and Susie are alone together that I get a sense of them as separate people. But when they're both in the room with Mitch or they're both in the room with Vicky or they're both in the room with mom, they're kind of one person in those scenes. And look, when I'm saying it's a problem, I don't mean it's a problem the movie doesn't overcome. I'm just saying as an audience member, Even if Mitch and Maggie can't tell which is which, I would like to know which is which for certain. That's all. They do try with the outfits, Larry, because Sharon's always more in a dress or girly, and Susie is a little bit more tomboy. Okay, so Sharon is the protagonist, I think, going in. And when Sharon initiates the phone calls and says, hey, this is going on, this is going on with Vicky, and Susie's like, hey, no, I got my mother all to myself. I don't want to do anything about this. So then she really does retain that role. Those long-distance phone calls, though, had they been in my house in that time frame, I can guarantee you my parents would have looked at the phone bill and be like, what in the world are you doing here? Right. Well, in fairness, the amount of time that's passed, the phone bill probably hasn't come yet. Oh, okay, true. Good that's point. probably coming. Good point. That's probably coming. <laughs> and I get the sense that Mitch doesn't look at the phone bills at all I, and just no, pays just, them without looking. Right. He doesn't pay attention to the details, I think. I think grandmother's looking at that phone bill. Grandmother is like, I see that you spent 15 cents on cheese. What was this? We have a cheese budget. We have cheese at home. Why, why did you feel the need to go out and get more cheese? All right, music. This is the Sherman Brothers' first compilation for Disney, by the way. Ah, I did notice they were on there, and I didn't know it was their first one. They do the Parent Trap, and then For Now, For Always, and then, of course, the Let's Get Together song, which plays twice. It plays at the kids' dance, and then the girls perform it for their parents as kind of a payoff. I will say, you could see already the Disney machine happening, where Annette 
Funicelli was singing the songs in this movie. Oh, we have a hit star. Let's add her to other things to spread the wealth, which still happens today in a bigger capacity. So that was interesting for me as a former exec who had to plan these things out. I was like, oh, look, it started way back then. I like the songs. I've grown up with them, though, and can sing them. I don't know from fresh ears if you guys were like, oh, I will tell you, I've seen this movie once before when I was a teenager. It's been easily almost three decades since I've seen it. I have always remembered Let's Get Together. Me too. And when, and when it happens, it's very it sticky. does not disappoint. Well mm-hmm. produced, the bit with her playing the piano, the little bit of like the comedy sketch between the two of them, and then they start playing, and then they get up and they dance. I love every second of it. Again, it's sticky, right? It's an earworm. The Sherman Brothers were an earworm factory, for sure. The Bare Necessities. I'm just thinking, what are the songs that get stuck in my head? It's a small world. I mean, they're the ones who wrote those, so for sure. I liked how they introduced Let's Get Together at the dance scene. And then you understood why the girls were singing it again. It was a song they were familiar with. So I liked it. It didn't just come out of nowhere for no reason. It was a song they're like, oh, we know the song. Let's sing this one. But it also cements them now as best friends. Yes. Right? Because yes. we haven't really had that much time of them together. There's a way in which you could look at this movie as about Mitch and Maggie falling back in love. But this is also a movie about two sisters who fall in love with each other. And that's so special. I love Maggie and Mitch. But if the movie wanted more time with Sharon and Susie learning to love each other, I'm here for that too. Yep. Yep. When they get together at camp, those are some of the most fun scenes of them cutting their hair, listening to each other. As a person whose best friend in middle school was someone that I did not like the first moment I met her. And then suddenly I had that experience of disliking someone and then getting to know them like, you're awesome. Why did I dislike you kind of thing? So I really connect with that. So themes. Let's talk about some themes. What are we seeing? I think pride. I mean, I almost want to say pride and prejudice because there is a sort of Jane Austen-esque quality to why Mitch and Maggie's relationships are damaged. I mean, I guess I can't use the title of another work to be the theme of this work, but... Why not? It's our podcast. We can do that. (laughs) But I do really think it's about human beings getting in the way of what they actually want to a degree. It's a movie about family. It is a movie about family, different families. As Andy pointed out, this was the first time you probably saw a story about divorce. Oh, in a family movie, for sure. Yeah. And twins, even. How many movies about twins were there back then? If you want to go with the extended metaphor of twins, because I think it's there, it's that being a part of a family is learning to think outside about more than just yourself. Maybe Mitch and Maggie, the reason they broke up early is they couldn't do that. They couldn't think beyond their own needs and think about what the family needs. And maybe now they can. Growth. I mean, everybody has growth in this movie, right? Maggie Mm -hmm. and Mitch come together 12 years later, and the, and the girls have growth because they get to know each other and become different people, better people, because they found each other. I love all of that. Yeah. Go Can ahead. I be a stick in the mud for a moment? Sure. sure. Okay, so here's the downer part of this podcast. This movie promises something to a lot of kids that I think, not intentionally, but does some damage, which is that mommy and daddy have gotten a divorce, but they still secretly love each other, and it's you It's your responsibility to bring them back together in some way, shape, or form. 
I don't know what to do with it because this movie is so charming and I do want Maggie and Mitch to get back together. But it is there that it's the kid's responsibility to repair what happened to your parents. And that's a little ball of yuck. Yeah, it is a little tough. I think that there's also this kind of note about children's rights that's important in this movie. These children have a right to live with one another. That's why I forgive it. Because siblings do have the right to live together and should. The one moment that always still disappoints me is when they're on the stairs, Maggie and Mitch, and they're still talking about splitting up the twins. I'm like, no, you can't take Sharon back. What do you mean? They're together now. You guys have to tote them across the country together. You can't just take one and then the other anymore. So that was the one I was like, no, they're together. You can't split them up again. Yes. And beyond that, they don't have that conversation with the children. Again, the children are voiceless about getting to articulate what it is that they want. Okay, I can't get this mad at this movie. It's 1961. <laughs> I, I was just going to say it was. Right. I mean, like children didn't have voices back then. <laughs> no. Unfortunately. But it's also the beginning and the genesis of children being able to say, no, wait, we have rights too. And I think that the idea of children being able to be subversive to get their rights, they shouldn't have to be subversive to get their rights. And the girls really are empowered in this movie. They really no, are 100%. Going after what they want. Can I just say... There's a lot of women in this film, and they all have really good roles. So thank you for that. I mean, it's huge. I mean, it is. Yeah. I mean, just like Pollyanna, there's a lot of great roles, juicy roles for women. And who was doing that in 1961? All right. Pitch time. We've laughed about this because I'm not sure we all have a good pitch, but we'll do our best. Given the 1998 sequel, or is it It's not really a sequel, it's a remake of The Parent Trap, remake. and then a 1986 movie sequel... The Parent Trap 2, which I... I've seen it. You have. How is it? It's interesting. You get rid of all the problems of this movie in a way because it's two friends that want to bring their divorced parents together. And then one is Sharon and, and Susie comes in and she's this wild child that helps them set up their own parent trap. So it's fun. Yeah, it's fun. It's not as good as this. Definitely not. But it's a fun, light TV movie. Well, given all that, what would we do with the source material? All right. I said at the beginning I didn't have any, and I've got two now, so I'll I'll give them to you. Neither of these is well thought out, but it takes place five seconds, the first pitch, it takes place five seconds after Parent Trap 1 ends, and Mitch and Maggie turn to each other, and they turn to the girls, and they say, okay, well, now that we're all together, we need to go find your third sister. (laughs) who is growing up with Mitch's estranged parents. They're actually not twins. They're triplets. Love it. It's about about bringing even more of the family together. (laughs) Okay. That's pitch number one from me. I'll give you pitch number two. Pitch number two is Susie and Sharon start a company called Parent Trap Incorporated, which is designed which is designed to give kids the opportunity to help support fixing their parents' marriages. They go into places, they take on roles. It's a TV series. Every week, Sharon and Susie insinuate themselves into the lives of a family and work to bring them together. They are both terrible and should never happen. <laughs> but if someone wants to pay me to do that, give me a call. Send me we are call. available. Well, 
they have done the second one kind of like there was this movie a couple of years ago about these two women that break people up. So it's kind of a same take. They go in, they're hired to break up people. So there you go. It's not as happy. It's the breakup instead of the makeup. There we go. All right. So mine is equally bad. We have grandfather and grandmother who get divorced after this because of all of their conflict. And the twins try to get them back together. But it doesn't work. Oh, you ended on a downer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think grandfather's going to get out from under grandmother's thumb and discover that he's a real human being. (laughs) I mean, if you're going to remake Straight Parent Trap, it'd be nice to have a diverse version or either explore the LGBT community or even just African-American or Asian or just something diverse because all three have been complete white and upper class, very upper class. I would love to see a diverse version of it because I think it could be just equally as fun and interesting if you're going to remake it for a third time. Oh, and honestly, maybe even better. Yes, agree. Agree. Yes. Especially if it's maybe a mixed family who come from different cultures. The twins are identical, but there's a piece of themselves that they've never gotten to explore. Each doesn't know the other family's culture. I mean, gosh, now I want to pitch that. (laughs) Fish out of water, which fish out of water stories are like the best because that's where you can hone so much comedy, you know, so or mine, mine, so much Mm, comedy. mm, mm, mm. (laughs) Sure. Well, Cassie, thank you so much. And thank Minnie Mouse for us, too, for that wonderful comment that we're so great. We're grateful for her stamp of approval. Big fans, (laughs) big fans of Minnie. I'll let her know. Oh, good, good, good. Well, next week's episode, Larry, is our 20th episode. It is our 20th episode. And I believe the end of season one of Once Upon a Disney. Yes. My gosh. So we decided to do a really obscure Disney movie. I don't know if any of you have heard of it. It's called Cinderella. (laughs) And spoilers, spoilers, a little bit about it. There's this princess involved. Right. She becomes a princess. Try to look it up. You you might be able to find it somewhere. (laughs) But yeah, we'll be talking. We'll be talking about Cinderella. Yeah. I'm very excited. I am very excited. Or as I prefer, Cinderella. I love it. I love it. Again, like Larry said, we're wrapping up the end of this first season. So after Cinderella, we're going to take a bit of a break. We're going to come back in late September with another season of Once Upon a Disney. And again, if you like what you're hearing, would you do us a favor and share this podcast with another Disney fan? We're planning some pretty big expansions for next season. If you can think of anything that might improve this podcast, check out our Once Upon a Disney Facebook page. Tweet us at at Andy Redwine or at Larry Brenner 6 or drop us a line in our mailbag at onceuponadisneypodcast at gmail.com. So until next time, friends, see you real soon. See you real soon.